Let's pray for God's blessing on our time and on his word. Gracious Lord and God, we ask you to help us in this time to understand these passages of scripture that we will be looking at this evening. To understand that worship is not something that happens to us. It's something that we engage in. And that when we come here as a church, that we are to be active participants in worship. When we worship you in our homes, we are to be actively engaged in those sacred duties. And often our feelings don't follow those duties. Sometimes they do. But help us to remember that to obey is better than sacrifice. And that you call us to worship you, to sing to you, to read your word, and to be attentive to what it says. So we ask that you would create that desire stronger than ever in our hearts through your words this evening. We humbly ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Someone at church sent me a link to a video by a fellow named Stephen Furtick. And that caused all kinds of similar videos to show up in my YouTube feed. And um, after watching all of that, I just thought, worship is not about entertaining the sheep. Worship's for God. And so I, I reserve the right to deviate from whatever third series I'm doing on Sunday nights and preach what I felt led to preach on. This is so important. First Peter chapter two, verses one and two. This is God's word. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And then turn over just a couple chapters to 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 1, this is God's word. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. May God bless the reading of his holy word. We've looked in some detail here in our church in times past at the biblical truth that God's service of worship from his redeemed people is to be regulated by scripture alone regarding the elements of a worship service. God delights in and he commands us to do the following. We know that we're supposed to do the following no matter what we always are to do these things in worship. Prayer, we're supposed to do that, we know that. The reading of scripture, the sound preaching, hearing the word with faith, the singing of psalms and hymns, the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ, 
are all parts of the ordinary worship of God, along with, on special occasions, the taking of religious oaths and vows, as we've seen, we've done church membership vows, baptismal vows, and things like that, solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions. Those are the non-negotiables. Those are the things that we're always supposed to do when we gather for worship. A gathering of Christian people on the Lord's Day, Sabbath, where the Bible was not opened, read, and heard, that would not be a proper worship service. That really wouldn't be Christian worship then. A gathering of Christian people on the Lord's Day, Sabbath, where no prayer was offered, would not be a proper worship service. We are not to add to Scripture nor subtract from Scripture regarding how God desires his people to worship him on the Sabbath day when they gather for that sacred task, that work that we're called to do. The circumstances of worship, those are the elements of worship. The circumstances of worship is something else. Whether we have a a building, a a pulpit, pews, whether I wear a suit or, or something else, whether we have a sound system or use certain musical instruments, that's ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence. That, that differs from place to place. This evening, I want to focus on what it is that we as worshipers are to do when we engage in those elements of worship. It seems that in American Christianity, really ever since the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s and the 19th century, people have really had a, a misordered understanding of what Christian worship is all about. You, you don't go to church so something can happen to you. You go to church to engage in work. You go to church to engage in work, the work of worshiping God. Worship is not something that happens to us. It's something that we do and are actively engaged in the whole time we're in this room. Worship is not a spectator sport or a concert for a passive audience. Worship is what the whole church, all those who profess to know Christ together with their households, it's what they are doing together. They, they do this together. They engage in the work, the task of worshiping God. Worship is for God's pleasure. It's for God's pleasure, not ours. And so first this evening, I want to talk about the work of worshiping God in church. What is it that we're supposed to be doing when we're in this room together on Sunday morning worship services or evening worship services? And also when we worship God at home, how, how does that work? How do we do that? Now that we've seen what God requires and forbids in in worship, what is our role now? What do we do when we come here? A sad tragedy and indeed a great evil of our time is that many professing Christians today go to church to be entertained rather than to express their love for Jesus Christ by singing the hymns, listening carefully to the reading and preaching of the word of God and making the pastoral prayer their own. Always remember that great biblical truth. God is the audience of worship. We do not go to worship God to be entertained. We don't come here to do something that happens to us or that we're passive in. We we don't go to take in a performance or a show. We go to engage in something that's very active. And here's the most important point I want you to see from the word of God this evening. Worship is something that you do and engage in. As you all have heard me speak about with with great fondness, my parents, my, my Parents are two of the most devout Christian people I've ever known. And my father uh, has a beautiful voice, a lovely voice. He sang with the Cincinnati Symphony and the, the chorus there with the Cincinnati Symphony. And, and standing next to him in church, and he would just bellow it out. And it was, it was glorious. 
And I never realized, I did not realize until I became a ruling elder and was often in front of the church when people were singing. There's a lot of people in church that just stand there and don't sing. I had no idea because my father was so loud when he sang. I had no idea. And you see guys, people just stand there. Like that. It's utterly heartbreaking to see that. Utterly heartbreaking. Worship's not going to happen to you. God commands you to sing. And I couldn't say that when I was there. <laughs> but I wanted to say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you singing? God doesn't care if you're tone deaf. It's okay. Worship's not something that happens to us. It's something that we do. It's something we engage in. One of the most encouraging comments anyone's ever made to me after a sermon I preached on a Sunday morning, it was at this church, they said, I feel tired after listening to you. (laughs) I think that was a compliment. (laughs) But I thought, you know, there's someone who engaged in worship. They engaged with God that, that Sunday. Preaching, singing, and prayer, it ought to force us to discipline our wandering minds. And people don't think that they should have to do that. I shouldn't have to discipline my wandering mind. But it's good to do that, to be disciplined. Worship is not passive, it's, it's active. We engage with God when we come to church. We engage in listening. We engage in prayer. We engage in singing from our heart. We engage in rejoicing, sometimes in mourning over our sin. But our whole person is engaged in these sacred tasks. Our emotions are involved in worship. We can feel the crushing burden of our sin. We, we feel the, the joy inexpressible and full of glory. Sometimes we're grieved over the fact that we're not more moved by these glorious truths. We're, we're grieved and we mourn over that. We, we glory in the blessed peace that awaits us in heaven. The unfulfillable longing to at last be with our Lord Jesus in heaven, free from, from sin, done with the battle. The terrible sadness and heartache over our loved ones who are lost. We feel that when we're in worship. The incredible humbling grace that God brings to us, that Jesus would die to make wretches like us his treasured possession. How could anyone experience that whole array of emotions and activities and not be exhausted? Worship should wear us out. But what a joy it is to be worn out for the right reason. It's a joy to be worn out for the right reason. To be worn out from loving the Lord, who bled and died to set us free and to give us all things, the scripture says. What could be more humbling than acknowledging that all we have is Christ? It is his cross work alone that brings us a full pardon of sin. It is his perfect and pristine righteousness alone that clothes our sinful nakedness and justifies us before his terrible tribunal. It is God's loving and altogether astounding and gracious verdict that we are now adopted into his family once and for all eternity. And that sacred blood-bought bond of love that covers us, it cannot and it will not ever be broken. The world can have its fame and its fading glory and its fickle praises, the passing pleasures of sin. But, oh, Lord Jesus Christ, give us a greater heart to know you. Give us a stronger hatred of our remaining indwelling sin. Give us a greater burden for the lost, a hunger for the word of God, a love for the preciousness of Christian fellowship in our local churches. Yes, indeed, for the redeemed child of God, worship is draining. Worship wears us out. Because it's something that takes your whole being. To sing to God as he deserves. To worship him as he really deserves. He deserves zealous, hearty sacrifice of praise from his blood-bought children.
one of the most shameful parts of my past is all those Sundays as a child, all those Sundays as a young man that I came to church bleary-eyed and tired and sat in church, mumbled a couple of words of the hymns if I happened to know them and struggled to stay awake and then went home not having really worshipped. That's evil. Evil. I'm glad Jesus died for that. 1 Peter 2.1, you see it there? Hopefully you're still there in 1 Peter. Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. That image of longing for milk like a newborn baby, it has special poignancy for anyone who's ever been around newborns, or anyone that has a newborn. The expression that's used there in verse 1, the, the Greek term there is uh, artigenita brefe, a newborn baby. Like, we're talking brand new baby. A brand new, tiny newborn. And that term, long for, desire, it refers to the deepest of longings a human being can have. The same word is used to describe the longing within the believer to be clothed with their heavenly habitation with Jesus in glory. It's that kind of longing. Yes, indeed, our longing for the word of God should be on that level. And the exhortation there is forceful regarding how we are commanded to long for the word, putting aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Why is that a preface to, to longing for the pure milk of the word? What that means is don't come to church to worship with a heart full of hate. Don't come to church to worship with a heart full of lies and hypocrisy and envy and discontent and slander. Lay aside all those things. Be like a newborn baby. Those newborns, when their stomachs begin to cramp and, and hurt for a lack of milk, you all have seen them, you, you hear them in here sometimes. They devote the entirety of their being to making that known. If you've ever been by a newborn that's hungry, you know exactly what that means. It's a sad thing to see how upset they get. And yet the scriptures themselves are commanding us who are adults that know Christ to be like little babies. A brand new baby that has a stomach cramp that wants so badly that pure milk of the word. I have to share the, the analogy that came to mind as I was looking for this, like a baby longing for pure milk. Once in a while, you know, actually it's not once in a while, but the kids make chocolate chip cookies all the time. It's my favorite thing to eat. But it's a nightmare if they made chocolate chip cookies and you're eating them and you discover there's no milk in the house. That's a downright disaster. Because you know what I'm talking about? You need a glass of milk so bad after all that sweet stuff. Except this is far, far more pointed than even that. Long for God's word in the same way that newborn baby longs to alleviate their hungry stomach pains. Jesus experienced acute hunger pains, which I dare say none of us ever have. He he's obviously was kept alive by the power of God. I mean, nobody can go 40 days and nights without consuming anything and, and be alive. And in the face of brutal temptation with hunger, those piercing pains in his stomach, which ached for food, the devil tells him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he said back to him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If only the need of our souls would pierce us 
with the same physical hunger pain that Jesus experienced there in the wilderness. If only we had that longing for the word of God when we came to church. There would never be a day that our Bibles would sit unopened. There'd never be those occasions in which we make the conscious choice to compromise with one of our besetting sins. Does that newborn child ever forget to let its caregivers know that they're hungry? They ever take a day off from doing that? Don't feel like it that day? Never. You know, we've criticized the the show business, the entertainment, the, the drivel that's done in so much of evangelical Christianity today. And that's been going on for a couple hundred years, ever since the 19th century, really with its glitz and nonsense. But I want to ask all of us, myself included, a question that we need to grapple with ourselves. What is it that we long for when we answer that alarm clock and wake up on Sunday mornings? What do we long for? When you keep your eye on the clock and you clean yourself up and if you've got children, you get them up and get them cleaned up and dressed and when you make sure you leave with enough time to get here, what is it that you long for? What is driving that? We've emphasized that worship is for God, and indeed it is. We're here not to be entertained, not to be amused, but to meet with God, to love, adore, worship, and glorify the creator of this whole beautiful, glorious world. All that you see in the clear night sky and the majestic wonders of the stars and the moon and all the other things that he created, we worship that God. But we need to ask another question about why we're here. Do you not long to hear a word from God? I remember the late R.C. Sproul, one of those Ligonier tapes. Everything is digital now, but I actually recently, I had a garbage bag filled with tapes uh, from the old days at Ligonier Ministries. And one of those tapes, I remember him saying, quote, when I went to church, when I was a young Christian, I longed to hear a word from God. I wanted him to speak directly to me. I wanted someone to open the Bible and teach me what it said, end quote. Doesn't that burn in your heart too? We long like a baby longing for milk to satisfy that hunger that consumes its every passion, to hear what our Heavenly Father has to say to us. Notice again verse 2. You see verse 2 there? Why are we commanded to long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby? You see the last part of verse 2? So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And this obviously doesn't mean that salvation is a process that we grow in or anything like that. That's the broader use of the word salvation, that, which includes our sanctification and our growth in grace and in our knowledge of God. We're saved, we're justified before God, as you've heard me emphasize, because the word of God does legally at the exact moment when God grants repentance unto life and saving faith. Justification is a forensic legal declaration made by God once for all eternity. Once a person is trusting in Christ alone, God changes their verdict from condemned to justified without any consideration of their works or their life or their future or their fruit or anything of the kind. And yet we're told to long for the word so that we can grow by it. So that we can grow in respect to salvation. In the wonderful letter of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, which is one of those scripture gold mines. It's one of those chapters that's just filled with wonderful things. Paul makes a statement about the way that the children of God perceive the world as they grow in grace, as they grow in their Christian life, as they become more mature as believers, they start to see people in totally different ways. They don't look at human beings the same way anymore. When you really start growing in your faith and you start growing closer to the Lord, you don't see superstars and you don't see celebrities. All you see are people that either know Christ or they don't. 
Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we ourselves have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. People are either new creations or they're not. They're either born again or they're not. They're believers or they're unbelievers. They're going to heaven or they're going to hell. And that's it. That's the only thing that matters. That is the most important thing about every human being you ever lock eyes with, including the person you look at in the mirror. Do you know him or or do you not? Are you a worshiper of God or are you not? We want to grow thereby. We want to have that perspective more and more definitional to who we are. So we're not distracted from simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We're new creations. Our pasts are dead and they're buried with Christ. We are dead and buried with Christ. There's a new principle of life, of self-giving love, just the way that God also loved us. And if we would not stagnate in our knowledge of God and go on to maturity and godliness, we have to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We hold fast to the sound words of Scripture, to the great teachings and doctrines that are our very life, no matter how we feel, no matter what the results, no matter what happens. And so often people tell me, there are so many times I read the Bible, I come to church and I listen and sing, and I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of it. And we need to train ourselves to say, who said that the main point was for you to get something out of it? What's this all for? It's for God. It's for God's pleasure. How I felt doesn't really matter. Now, sometimes you'll feel great and you'll have the tears flowing and walking strong with the Lord. Other times you got burdens that are unspeakable and heartache that's unspeakable. And yet our duties are always the same. Our duties are always the same. If you doubt that, read the book of Job. Read Job slowly, methodically, carefully. When his life was blessed, what are his duties? To worship God. To worship God with all of his heart. When his wife's left him, all ten of his kids died the same day. All of his wealth is stolen. His reputation is ruined because everyone thinks that God's turned his back on him. He must have sinned. He must have done something. And he's covered with boils from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. His duties are still the same. And Job says, even if God slays me, yet will I worship him. Yet will I trust him. I would ask you, do do the demons of your past rear their heads from time to time with you? Do the sins you once walked in and wore as red hot iron yokes around your neck, do they stick like Satan's darts in your mind, especially when you come to church? Or when you awake on Sunday morning and suddenly your mind is flooded with a thousand reasons to stay home? I'll tell you, so many times when I'm sitting right there about to come up here, it's amazing the things that come into my mind. Blasphemy. Terrible things from my past. And I have to remind myself, my ability to be a minister of the gospel is not dependent on my present level of righteousness. It's dependent upon the finished work of my Lord. Period. Those things don't define my life anymore. They're gone. When you think about all of that, when you think about your past and you think about where you've been, maybe ways you failed this week, I want you to reflect on this too. Remember what it cost God to forgive you, but also remember what sin costs us when we commit it. 
Remember Peter weeping bitterly? Remember those bitter tears? How ashamed was he of himself? When he swore he'd never deny the Lord, he did not deny him three times that day. Remember David's earthly life? They never knew peace again in his household after he sinned. He had God's forgiveness, yes, but it cost him. Remember Gehazi, Elisha's traveling companion who coveted the silver and the changes of clothes from Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy and what happened to Gehazi? He got the leprosy for the rest of his life. Remember Achan? Achan's death along with his entire family for coveting that silver there at Jericho or at at Ai. Remember, dear Christians, the ruined conscience. Remember the shame, the regret. Remember the, the sickness that you felt when you ate too much dessert. Remember the sickness you felt the last time you had too many helpings of dessert? And the idea of more sweets makes you nauseous? Remember Peter wrote that passage I read to you. Look at it again, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And then let, let verse 3 echo in your heart. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Okay, stop there. You hear hear the weariness in his heart? We've already wasted enough of our life with this stuff. We've already done this way too much. In verse 4, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. As you grow in your Christian life, into strong and vibrant, godly, upright children of God. Perhaps your friends, your former friends, will begin to think, you're really weird. You've gotten really weird. You just think you're too good for us now. They'll think it's strange. You no longer have any interest in running with them. In the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you, it says there in the text. That word translated dissipation, it means reckless abandon, debauchery, profligacy. People notice you're no longer one of them as you grow in Christ, as you desire the pure milk of the word and grow in respect to salvation, you become very different. And your former friends will start talking evil of you. Yes, your good will be spoken of as evil. Your righteousness will be identified as evil by the world of unbelief. You know, Peter himself, I love the apostle Peter. He's special. He's one of my favorite guys in the New Testament. He had a rough background. He was a foul-mouthed Galilean fisherman. Many Christian people can identify with Peter, can't we? Because the poor guy just blew it so regularly and so profoundly, didn't he? He was constantly putting his foot in his mouth and messing up. And yet look at what God was able to do even with him. A man with feet of clay but a regenerate heart of gold who wanted to do so much good. The foul-mouthed fisherman became an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wrote two letters which were God-breathed that we have here in our Bibles, First and Second Peter, and those letters have blessed and taught millions of people. And eventually, as tradition tells us, Peter was crucified upside down. You all know the story. As he was being led to be crucified, he did not think he was worthy to be crucified in the same posture as his Lord. He said in verse 3 there, we've already spent enough time of our past lifetimes doing the will of the Gentiles. We've already done enough of that. We've already walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. So wherever you are in your walk with Jesus today, if you're a Christian, the pure milk of the word of God 
calls out to you to long for it so you will grow. It is time. Today is the day to reprioritize your life. Get on your knees before the Bible. It's time today to pray to God for his forgiveness and to confess the stone-cold hard-heartedness of heart that has taken us away from what is true and good and beautiful and enamored us with lies and foolishness and worldliness and the passing pleasures of sin. If the infant newborn child does not get that milk, it will get sick and die. God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. Everything that we need, that pure, nourishing milk of the word of God so we can grow. And if you're a Christian, you want to grow, don't you? You want to grow in your walk. You want to become more like Christ. That's what worship is all about. We come here because we, maybe because we're burdened that we don't long for the word the way we should. And we pray that God would create a deeper longing for it. Worship's not something that happens to us. Worship is what we engage in when we're here, when we meet with the triune God. We engage God by praying, longing for the pure milk of the word, listening to the milk of the word, singing to him, worshiping him in song. Pray for yourself. And if you have a family, pray for and with your family. When you're all in the car on your way here or sometime before you get here, pray that God will make your hearts and minds receptive to his word. Even if people were just fighting 30 seconds ago about who's going to sit where in the car, pray that God will help you. Pray that God will stir you to give him a sacrifice of praise, an active sacrifice of praise. That God is always worthy of our very best. If we don't get adequate sleep and we show up here nodding off to sleep, I say that because my mother, you've heard me tell you that, my mother slapped me silly nearly every Sunday between the age of 14 and 17. And I'm very, very thankful she did that. Very thankful she did that. She's from a different generation. They, they didn't have a whole lot of patience back then. I'd show up bleary-eyed and, and tired. Shame on us. Read, read the four chapters of Malachi's prophecy. Read the, those four short chapters. What a great little book that is. Remember what God rebuked Israel for in those chapters? Stop bringing the sick and the blind and the crippled. Don't bring me your blemished animals. Don't give me the best of your leftovers. Take it to your governor. See if he'll be okay with that. Take it to your employer. See if he'll be okay with that. God thunders against the cheap sacrifices of praise. Take it to your governor and see if he will be pleased with you. God deserves our very best. May we endeavor to be prayed up and ready every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening to engage the task of worship, the hard, exhausting work of worshiping God. And then one more little passage I wanted to walk through with you this evening. Turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. Way back to the left there in your Bible. Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. Remember, Exodus chapter 12 is the institution of Passover. The institution of Passover. And Passover, like all worship, was to be a family activity. It was something that the families of Israel were supposed to do together. Exodus 12, verses 26 to 27. Listen to God's word. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worship. There's been a phenomenon that's happened uh, in recent decades in American 
churches that is unprecedented in church history as far as I've been able to find. And I've looked for it. I've looked to see, did anyone ever do this before we started doing it in America just a few decades ago? It's this very odd, very strange phenomenon called children's church. The church I grew up in did that. Often right before the beginning of the public reading of scripture and then the preaching of the word, children leave. They're dismissed out of the service. Our Reformation forefathers and their successors, the Puritans, would recoil in horror at the sight of such a thing. The assumption all the way through the Bible, from beginning to end, is that everybody's always present for everything. For all the worship gatherings. There's a disturbing trend in our culture to separate children from their parents. It seems to permeate every activity and every age level in our society. And once again, the church has followed instead of lead. Almost everything families do, they do separately in our society, even in our churches. Can you think of any activities which encourage every member of a family to be in the same place for an extended period of time? Do sports do that? No. School do that? No. Music? No. Bible studies? No. And sadly, nearly everything done in churches in our day, it doesn't promote families doing anything together either. Rarely do church activities involve all the members of a household being all together. The biblical model for fulfilling the Great Commission, it's not merely foreign and home missions. There is a massive, huge, incredibly neglected component of the Great Commission that has been nearly forgotten to the detriment of generations of Christians in our country. Did you read the passage? Listen to it again. Exodus 12, 26. Notice what it says. It shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? So the children are there for Passover and they're going to ask, why are we doing this? Why do you guys do this? Why do you kill a lamb? And why do we go through this ritual? And it tells the parents, here's what you're supposed to say when they ask you. It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. Later in Exodus, Exodus 13, 14. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, and teach them to your children and your grandchildren. Remember Luke 150, Mary? She says, And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Ephesians 6, 4. You fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Fathers, bring them up in the the training and admonition of the Lord. Now such passages could be multiplied forever. Children are a vital part of the worship of God's people. We want to promote older generations loving and knowing the younger generations. I just have news for you. Have you all noticed there's nobody who's born wise? Have you ever met a wise two-year-old? A wise four-year-old? Scripture gives us the universal axiom. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You will never meet a child where wisdom is bound up in their heart from birth. So what do you get if you separate older, wiser people from younger people and put lots of younger people together with minimal, wise supervision? You get lots and lots and lots of foolishness. The staggering truth is that the majority of ideas about ministry that exist in evangelical churches today seem to be determined to make sure that the older and wiser and godlier segments of congregations never have any contact with the younger. 
Titus 2 gives us the older, younger model for ministry. Older women are to disciple younger women. You don't want your children to be discipled by their peers. The whole congregation needs to try as much as possible. Do things together. Do things together. That's why we do that Wednesday night Bible study. I've always said it's not a child's catechism class. Everybody come together. Mom, dad, kids, come together. Do stuff together. Our children need to be here for worship. And they shouldn't be dismissed from it. You know, when one of my children was about three years old there in the church in Ohio, and I, I was a ruling elder helping serve communion, and, and Amy was with one of my other kids somewhere else, we had to scatter kids throughout the, the church. And she would often sit with someone else uh, other than Amy during the church service. And on communion Sunday, one Sunday, we were distributing the elements, and I heard my little child ask this other woman uh, in the church as she was sitting in her lap, why are we doing this? And that godly woman said, I remember she said, to remember that Jesus died for our sins, Lily. The bread is his body. She was three years old. I'll never forget that. Why are we doing this? And I heard her sharing the gospel. And it just gave me the chills. I just thought, that's what's supposed to happen right there. This is not only for our spiritual nourishment. It has pedagogical purposes. It's supposed to teach the younger ones. They need to be there for this. They need to see it. My heart was warmed by that. That's the church being the church to the rising generation. I would ask, what if, what if Lily had been in children's church? At the church I came from, I was an elder there for, and a pastor for a total, a total of 10 years. And it was the, the traditional, what has become traditional, it's unheard of in church history. Never happened in church history. But what has become the traditional age-segregated, fully-staffed youth ministry model. And I watched class after class after class after class of 18-year-olds walk away from that church for 10 years. And never come back. The few that stayed complained constantly to the session using the following expressions. There's nothing for us here anymore. Uh, that always struck me as odd given the church had 340 members. Really? There's nothing here for you anymore? What are all these people? Chopped liver? As I reflected on that more and more over the years, I finally understood what they were really saying. What they were really saying was, there's not a peer-oriented group here for me anymore. That's really what they were saying. They would say constantly, we just don't feel like we're part of the church anymore. And it hit me one day, they don't feel like they're part of the church because they've never been part of the church. They never were part of it. They've always been pushed off to the side, into peer groups, away from the rest of the church. To their detriment and to our detriment. We missed out and they missed out. The transition from being in high school and being part of a church to being out of high school and part of a church, it ought to be transparent and seamless because everybody's together. Everybody knows each other. Age-appropriate Sunday school classes, that's fine. That's wonderful. But just think with me a moment about worship and the general activities of a church. We ought to do things together. All ages together. Especially solemn acts of worship. This is why we don't do children's church. We have a nursery that goes to age two, but the day the kids turn three, they've got to be here in service. And they don't have to go there. You can keep your little ones in church. You're more than welcome to do that. In fact, we encourage you to do that. They need to be taught that they're not just observers of what's going on here. They are participants in it. They're supposed to sing the hymns. As soon as they can read, they need to be given a Bible and they need to learn where the books of the Bible are. And they need to learn how to turn to those books and follow along in the passage. They need to be taught how to take their place as a worshiper of God and to engage in that work of worship. So they see their own sin and they see Christ as their Savior. 
How do you think Paul would have reacted if he had been told, hey, Paul, that church you planted in Corinth, yeah, they decided to start getting rid of all the kids between the ages of three and six when the word is being preached and when they're singing and taking the Lord's Supper. How do you think Paul would have responded to that? It would have been Galatians-level nuclear. Children are not to be set aside while the adults can go about the business of worshiping God. Listen, please, children need to be there. We have a crying room back there for when they get fussy, when they get wiggly, when they're kinetic, when parents need to discipline them. It's a process. They have to learn and be taught by patient and loving parents who are more concerned that their children know Christ than they are with their own comfort and convenience in a church service. And I want to say something to all all of you, as I know this church has a lot of kids in it, whether they're your children or not, and whether you have kids or not, or are married or not, I hope you pray every day for all these little kids. Think of all the potential there is there. I see all these little kids, you know, walking around and their bright little faces, and just think the potential is there for great good and diabolical evil. Mom and dad, don't ever be put out that one of your children's fussing while I'm preaching. It doesn't bother me at all. It's just like being at home. And when you patiently take them out into the lobby or the crying room to settle them down, to discipline them if need be, to pray with them, to, to pray for them, listen to me, please. You are every bit worshiping God and doing that as anyone else in this room. Now, you know, I, I have a big family. When I was young, when I was in my late 20s, I, I had oodles of children already. And there was a lady, a wise lady at that church that would see me out in the hallway on Sunday nights with three of my kids and one of them's fussing and I'm holding one and chasing another one. And she would look at me and say, this is really good for you, Patrick. <laughs> I'd say, yeah, pure joy. <laughs> it's one of the most encouraging things that I see from where I stand right here in this pulpit the patient, loving parent who has a heart for their children and wants to help them come to know Christ and wants them to learn how to be still and listen and how to trust in Christ as their Savior and their Lord. That's heartwarming to see it. It really is to me. You may miss some things that are being said in the worship service, but the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is smiling upon you as you obey his command to teach them diligently to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, and to be reconciled to God, that they might one day profess their own faith in our blessed Lord Jesus and be a communicant member of the church. I know it's hard work, and it can be stressful and everything else, but I love watching the young parents in here do that. Together, dear congregation, we are the family of God, and we aren't the fullness of that family if we separate the future of the church from us in corporate worship on the Lord's Day. They need to be here with us. We need to help each other out with that. Worship is what we do. We do it together as a whole church. We are active participants in it, and we do it as families. We do it as one whole family together in this church for the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior and Redeemer. If we will be a biblical church regulated by God's word, we must always bear those things in mind. Listen, the proper way of worship is instituted by God's word alone, to which nothing at any time is to be added or subtracted. God is the audience of worship. And God calls this visible church to worship him as the whole visible church, which from the days of Adam until right here, right now, has always been defined as those who profess the worship of the one true God, the true religion, and their children. Let us obey God in that regard. Let us pray that as long as there is a gospel witness in this place, that the Christian people who gather here to worship and adore God will do so with everyone in the family. 
every Lord's Day until our Lord returns at last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the church and for those that profess the true faith and their children. We thank you for every single covenant child that's in this room, every covenant child you bless this church with. And we pray you'd give us more. We pray that we'd be diligent and faithful in engaging the sacred task of worship. That we, we come into the sanctuary, we take up the hymnals, we open our Bibles to engage you in worship so that you are pleased. You are the audience, not us. And we pray that we would keep our children with us and that you'd save every last one of them. In Christ's name we ask, amen.